Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Mark 9. Let's turn back there. You can come up here. Mark 9. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 to 13, study it together here this morning and continue our straightway series, the straightway transformed. We're going to see a transformation of Jesus and, um, and what that means for us. Here in the middle of Mark's gospel, we got the amazing account of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. I don't know, did, did any of you have a, a mom or a grandma who had a big Oh, family Bible. Do you remember those? I don't, a lot of people don't have them anymore, but my grandma had this big one. Whenever I went to her house, a lot of times in the summer when I was little, I'd be babysat or after school and I'd take out that big Bible because uh, it had really amazing pictures in it. None of my Bibles ever had pictures, but that beautiful artwork. And one of them uh, was of this, this event, the transfiguration. Now, uh, I got to be honest, I struggled to understand what was going on in that picture or even what, as an elementary school kid, I didn't know what transfigured uh, meant. Uh, but still, that, that picture from that passage, it stood out to me even 40 years later. And uh, th- this morning, the three disciples closest to Jesus... Peter, James, and John, while he was here in his earthly ministry, they were privileged to witness what really is a spectacular scene, and and so are we this morning through their description here. And even better, we're going to find out this morning that the the transformation that happens here to Jesus Christ, that these disciples got a little bit of a glimpse of, it's very similar to what Jesus wants to do in your life, in my life. Uh, for all of those who will turn to faith and follow him. We already read through this before we study it verse by verse. Let's go to the Lord once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we've sung your word, but as we come to it now to study it together, I pray your Holy Spirit would have free reign here, that any obstacles that might be uh, present in our hearts, uh, in our minds, would be removed. Help us to uh, understand what you present to us here your powerful word. I pray that your powerful word would do what it does, that there be a powerful transforming work as a result of what we study together this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see, verses 1 to 3, is a prophetic glimpse, uh, a a reconnection to reality. If you look at verse 1, it says, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you. So Jesus is teaching his disciples here. This isn't really a whole new thing. It's a connection. Verse 1 is a connection to what we looked at last week. If you remember, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And then he went on to tell them what that means for them, that if they were going to follow him, they were going to have to deny them themselves, that take up their cross and, and follow Jesus. Jesus taught them last week in that passage we looked at that, yes, he was the Messiah. They were right. Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. But what Peter's conception and the disciples' conception of what a Messiah was, was different than what God's plan was. Uh, he wasn't just there to overthrow the Roman government and give them freedom, political freedom. The Messiah was so much more than that. Jesus taught us last week. He came to suffer, to die, to rise from the dead in order to bring about our salvation, to vanquish sin, and to initiate, initiate his kingdom. 
And, and as we learned last week, those who would receive his salvation, they're going to have to deny themselves, uh, take up the cross, and follow him. They're going to have to recognize that this world, the world that we're all in right now, this is in our home. This world's not our home. Uh, we're pilgrims, pilgrims here. We are ambassadors of what is reality, what is the real kingdom, the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, you know, as Jesus followers, uh, we are in a constant battle right here and now uh, to not be distracted, to not be detoured from what is, what is our reality. We talked about last week our position in union with Christ, that if you've received Christ as Savior, you were united to him. You are who he says that you are. Also, the reality of what is our future eternal home and what that means that then and there, what that means here and now for how we should think, the things that we should value, what we should do. Look at, <clears throat> look at verse 1. Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, some of his disciples, that shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now that doesn't mean that these, some of these disciples Jesus is talking about here, it doesn't mean that they were not going to die until Jesus returned because we know that's not the case because uh, Peter and James and John, they're, they're not here. They're not in any church this morning. They're up in, in heaven. So that couldn't be what, what Jesus meant. Uh, James and Peter, both of them died as martyrs as they went out and fulfilled the Great Commission. John, we don't exactly know if he died as a martyr or just died of natural causes, but he suffered for Christ. He died shortly after he went, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos when he wrote the book of, of Revelation. So what Jesus meant here in verse 1 when he says, some of you, uh, this is true, some of you are not going to taste death till you see the kingdom of God come in power, is, he's meaning they're about to get a prophetic glimpse. They're about to see the kingdom of God. They're about to see Jesus, what he will look like in that coming kingdom. That's something that's even ahead for you and I uh, this morning. It's something that was going to change their lives, what they're about to see, and it would help solidify this reconnection to reality as Jesus followers. I hope it does the same thing for all of us here this morning. See, this prophetic glimpse, it was a revelation of Christ's reign. If you look at verse 2, it says, After six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and he leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So Jesus, six days after this whole teaching episode from last week in verse 1, he takes these three disciples up into a mountain with him, and says he was transfigured before them. Well, what does that mean? What does transfigured mean? In the Greek, that word is metamorpho-o. Metamorpho-o. Does that sound like any of our English words? Metamorphosis. I mean, that's really what transfigured means. It means there's a change. There's a transformation. How do we use that word? Well, you probably remember from elementary school. Metamorphosis. It's a process whereby them cute and fuzzy little caterpillars, they're going to turn into a beautiful butterfly. Maybe you put one in a jar like I did and a little stick in there so it could form the cocoon and all of that. That's what it means here. It simply means to be transformed. Jesus was, I let it out. Grace was looking at me kind of funny. You put it in a jar, I let the butterfly out. All right, but it simply means to be transformed. Was Jesus transformed? Well, look at verse 3. 
It says, in his raiment, Jesus' raiment, his clothing became shining, exceeding white as snow. So as no fuller on earth can whiten them. OxyClean can't do this. Um, uh, bleach can't do this. I don't, whatever you're going to use, era, whisk, uh, it cannot make your clothes whiter than Jesus' clothes were in what verse 3 describes. In, in Luke's gospel, it talks about his face even shining. It was, they, this was not who they had been with for the last three years. They were getting a glimpse of Jesus in his coming kingdom, and so are we this morning. Uh, Very similar to what Daniel describes in Daniel chapter 10 when he gets a vision of Jesus in eternity. What what Revelation 1 describes when when John writes out uh, when he was in the Lord's day on the Isle of Patmos, and he gets this vision of Jesus, very similar to what's described here in verse 3. We have to remember that, that in the condescension of Jesus Christ, when God came down, what we celebrate at Christmas, when he was born as a human being, when he was born as a man to save us from our sins, uh, in this condescension, when he came here to perform his, his messianic mission and to give us this message of the gospel, do you understand that Jesus looked like these three disciples? He looked like you. Jesus looked like me. Up until this point, he just looked like a human being because that's what he was. Now, to be clear, Jesus was 100% God and a 100% man all at the same time, but he looked like us. In Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus, Isaiah 53, long chapter there, talking about Jesus and what he would do, what the Messiah would uh, be. It says this, Isaiah 53, 2, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance <laughs> that we should desire him until now. Very different looking now. They're seeing Jesus, the uh, risen, uh, resurrected, uh, reigning king. They're seeing Jesus uh, like we're going to see him when he comes and returns for us, when he sets up his millennial kingdom here and then his eternal kingdom. That's what they are seeing uh, here in this prophetic glimpse that Jesus gives to his disciples. The whole purpose to, to reconnect them to what is reality, to reveal to them his upcoming reign, He's transformed into the glorious king of kings and lord of lords right before them. Now, this is very important because if you remember from last week, he said, who do, you, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Messiah, Peter says. You're the Messiah. And then he told them for the first time with great clarity what that meant. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. My message is going to be rejected. I'm going to rise again. And then what did Peter do? No. Come here, Jesus. That's, that's not how this whole Messiah thing works. Let me set you straight on what's supposed to happen and so Jesus here is showing them that, yes, he is the, the risen, resurrected, coming king. This is what he's going to look like. Very reinforcing to them after they had this very mind-blowing, life-altering message from last week. Very important, very essential that they get a glimpse of, of who really who, who looked like just like a man for the last three years. But now they get this glimpse of him in this way. And it's important that we see him this way. It is. I mean, yes, he was a man. We need to remember that too. He had to be a man in order to live the life that we were supposed to live but didn't and couldn't. He had to be a man in order to die for our sins in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. But he's also God. And he is also God. And here these three disciples and you and I this morning were given a glimpse of what the glorious, risen, resurrected, reigning amazing Savior Jesus Christ will look like. Now, some exciting things also happen here as we go into verses 4 to 6. It says, verse 4, And there appeared unto them Elias, that's just Greek for Elijah, 
Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. So we see some prominent guests here. Um, and what is the purpose of their presence? I mean, why, why did um, God have Moses and Elijah appear here? If the focus was to see the reigning, resurrected, glorious Jesus Christ, what we're going to see when he returns for us, what are Moses and Elijah doing here? Well, I think it's powerful evidence that helped connect God's redemptive plan from all throughout Scripture, from Genesis on. I mean, it began in Genesis. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, to the work of Christ right there and right then for them. Uh, the message, the ministry of the Messiah Jesus, this was not some new way of salvation. It's always been, even in the Old Testament, it's always been by God's grace and through our faith in his grace. And, and in Mark's very short um, concise, straightway here, straightway there, gospel. All we are told here is that Elijah and Moses, in verse 4, it says they were talking with Jesus. It's in Luke's gospel. In his account of this very same event, he says what they were talking about. Luke 9, 31, we find out the topic of their conversation, and it says that they spoke of Jesus's upcoming decease. Uh, his departure. Uh, literally, the word is exodus. They were Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus in front of Peter, James, and John about Jesus' upcoming death <laughs> as a payment of sins, so that by faith in him we might be saved. Do you think that the presence of Moses and Elijah made an impression on these three disciples, especially since they were talking about Jesus having to die for their sins? I I'm sure it did. I mean, if you remember last week when Jesus first told them, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, Peter's like, no, 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 he's so confused. He tried to talk Jesus out of it. And Jesus patiently explained the necessity of it. But here this week, he gives them something that's going to reinforce them, something that's going to embolden their faith. And here in this conversation, God does that. He graciously gives, reinforcing message. Look, this was God's plan for the Messiah all along. What happened to Jesus, it was not an accident. Things didn't go wrong. This was God's plan from the very beginning in theology and seminary and all this. We, we call the Genesis 3.15, we call it the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first gospel. Do you remember what God promised? This is as soon as we sinned, Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, Jesus told what would be a result. God told what would be a result there. Um, I mean, we're going to have to work and work is not going to be fun anymore. Uh, women, you're going to have pain in childbirth. And then he cursed the serpent, didn't he? And what did he say there in Genesis 3.15? Eve, your descendant, Satan's going to bruise his heel. What's Jesus going to do? He's going to crush his head. <laughs> He's gonna, that's the very first gospel, the promise that there would be a Messiah, a Savior coming. And all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, all the way till now, this is the message. This wasn't an accident. It's so necessary for Peter and James and John and for us to see that this wasn't an error. It wasn't something that just happened. I mean, this was God's plan all along. Peter finally got this message. He did. We know that. Like After Jesus' resurrection, uh, after the Holy Spirit comes down, Peter is the preacher at the sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And in, in Acts 2.23, he speaks of Jesus as this. This man who was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This was God's plan from the beginning of time. That Jesus would suffer, that he would die, that he would rise again. And Peter says, you, 
Talking to the congregation, you with the help of wicked mans, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter got it by then. But here, see the resurrection hasn't happened, the crucifixion hasn't happened. Peter's still a little confused. We see the perplexity of Peter and inability to deal with and understand everything that's being told him. Look at verse 5. It says, and Peter answered. Uh, Nobody asked him a question. Notice that. But it says, Peter answered, and he said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. Now, that's not like a big church building. Tabernacles, just uh, in Hebrew culture and the Greek word here, it means little booths. He's saying, let's make a little tent. Let's make temporary camping accommodations. Um, in the army, Anthony, you get this. We call them hasties, right? So something to go and uh, hang out in. Uh, protection from the elements. He says, let's do that because it's good for us to be here. We'll make one for Moses and we'll make one for Elijah and we'll make one for you, Jesus. Um, he's 100% right on this. It's good for us to be here. I mean, wouldn't you like to see this? The risen, resurrected, glorious Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you like to talk with Moses and Elijah? I know I would. I got a lot of questions for all three of these individuals when I get to heaven. I want to ask them a bunch of things. Moses, he's one of my favorite Old Testament characters. Maybe my whole favorite character besides Jesus in the Bible. I'd like to show him a picture of my Moses. A little dog Moses. Uh, but we find out in the rest of these verses that Peter, Peter is still perplexed. He's still confused about what Jesus said about his death and resurrection last week. He's still confused about what he just saw and everything he just heard. Because he wants to make some tents for all three of them. So they can continue to experience this thing. Maybe indefinitely. Verse 6 says that these d- disciples, Peter, James, and John, they were sore afraid. And the first part of verse 6 says that Peter said all this because he wist not what to say. That's King James for he didn't know what to say. Um, I can kind of relate to Peter. I don't know about you, but there are times when my mouth works faster than my brain does. There are times when I don't know what to say and I say something goofy. There there are times, and I'm, I'm learning, pray for me, I'm learning, I'm working on learning that uh, sometimes awkward silence is preferable to letting something dumb or of no benefit come out of your mouth. Jesus couldn't stay here. That's a fact. Jesus couldn't stay here. I mean, he had a mission. That, that mission is what he was just talking with Moses and Elijah about. What was ahead? Garden of Gethsemane. The Via Dolorosa, where he carried his cross up to Calvary. Calvary was ahead. What was ahead? The empty tomb was ahead, amen? Like that part. What's ahead? His ascension into heaven, sending the Holy Spirit down here to live in those who are his by faith. What's ahead? His return. I can't wait for that. Jesus can't stay here. Peter, he can't stay here with Moses and Elijah. And next we read of the powerful God. First of all, his word. This is the command of the gospel. If you look at verse 7, it says, And then there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. So, uh, beginning now in verse 7, we see a change in this scene. The the prominent guests, Moses and Elijah, they start to fade away. They're actually going to go away here in a verse. But who's here now? The powerful God. He comes in the form of a cloud, just like that cloud that that led Israel through the wilderness by by day, like the cloud that would come and inhabit the Holy of Holies when that that sacrifice was made on the Day of Atonement. A God comes down in this cloud, and in this amazing event, he's got a message for these three disciples and for us this morning. What does he say? 
this is my beloved son, hear him. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. Uh, We're asked to focus only on God, only on Jesus. And he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. I bet they did, don't you? Can you imagine this now? You just saw Moses and Elijah, and now God comes down in the form. We haven't seen this since the Old Testament. God comes down in the form of a cloud, and you hear this voice. You know it's a voice of God. This is my beloved son. Hear him. I think their ears perked up. What about you? Are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to what he says? Do you believe he's God's son? Do you believe he's your savior? And are you hearing him? Are you going to heed what he says? Verse 8 tells us all of a sudden this prophetic glimpse is over. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. God leaves. It says in verse 8, suddenly when they looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. Just Jesus and these three disciples are here right now. In verses 9 to 13, they come down from this mountain. They have a conversation. It says, and they came down from the mountain. He charged them that they should tell no man what things they had just seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. They shouldn't tell anybody about this, this event, this glimpse they just saw until Jesus had risen from the dead. It says, and they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising from the dead should mean. They still don't get it after all of this. What? What is he talking about rising from the dead? You know, um, we get confused and distracted a lot of times. That's what happened here. Peter's still confused. He's still stuck on Moses and Elijah. Or at least Elijah, that's what he says here. Verse 12, and, and, or verse 11, and, and they asked him, well, why say the scribes that Elijah needs to come first? This is from Malachi. At the very end of the book of Malachi, uh, at the end of the Old Testament, it says that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would return. And he turned the hearts of fathers to their kids and their kids to their fathers. And he says, why, why they're focused on Elijah still. And so Jesus explains this in, in verses 12 to 13. He says, and Jesus answered, and he told them, Elijah verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it's written, the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come. Elijah has come. And they've done unto him whatsoever they listed. As it is written of him. Jesus is saying here, guys, you know what Elijah, you know who that was? It was John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He prepared the way for me. He got people's hearts to, ready to, to hear what I was going to say and to understand and to receive me. What did they do to John the Baptist? It's been a couple of chapters, but what happened? He's killed. What did they do to Jesus, the one he prepared the way for? Same thing. The message wasn't received by the vast majority of people. It was rejected. And the power of God, it is seen in the word of God. we just seen it. He came down in a cloud. He says, this is my beloved son, Jesus, hear him. And we see the power of God in, in the word of God as the message of Jesus. I mean, since chapter one, he's been saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent and believe the gospel. This is reality. Don't be distracted by everything going on in this world. Make sure you're right with God. Make sure you've received Jesus as savior. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The word of God changes lives when it's received, when it's believed. What happens? We see the work of God. 
We see the work of God. We see lives transformed. I want to look at two more verses before we close. Romans 12. Will you turn there with me? Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. And you you probably know these verses by heart. They're incredible verses. Um, Paul, he explains the gospel in such detail. Romans chapters 1 through 11. Then we get to chapter 12. This is a great turning point. Like what should your response to the gospel be if you've received Jesus Christ as Savior? There's two other places. We're going here and then we're going to go one other place. The same exact word. That happened to Jesus. Metamorpho. Oh, Jesus was transformed. He was transfigured. It's used of Christians. It's used of the followers of Christ. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, I'm pleading with you, brethren, by the mercies of God, based on the gospel I've just shared, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. That's your reasonable service. This is the the least you can do. This is spiritual worship, what God wants from you. And then verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world. That's what worldly people do. This isn't even reality. Don't be conformed to this world, but be what? Be transformed, be metamorphosed. Same exact word as Jesus' transfiguration. You're supposed to be changed into something new. See, the same thing that happened to Jesus, he, those who receive the gospel, it's supposed to happen to them too. It does happen to them. Think about Christ's disciples. These are humble, like backwoods, Galilean fishermen. And they respond to the word of God. They receive Christ as Savior. And then what kind of transformation happens? They turn this world upside down for Jesus Christ. You and I are here this morning because of Peter and James and John and Saul and Barnabas. There's a transformation there in what they did for Christ. I want to live like that. I want to be like them. I want to, like the book of Acts, I want that to be my experience. I want that to be Dublin First Baptist Church's experience. Lives transformed. Isn't that the description we're given here? In Romans 12, 1 and 2, that this is what the gospel is supposed to do in our lives? It's going to transform us? How does it do it? Be ye transformed by what? You've got to renew your mind. That's how it happens. You've got to renew your, your mind. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, last, last passage. 2 Corinthians 3. And here, God has the apostle Paul Give us an illustration of something that happened in Exodus 34 back in the Old Testament. Moses went up to the Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. He was up there for a while. He was meeting with God in God's presence. God wrote the Ten Commandments that he brought down. Uh, he brings them down to the Israelites at the, at the bottom of Mount Sinai to, to give them God's commandments and, and to bring them into covenant community by faith with, with God. And um, do you know what it says that Moses' face was like? It's shining. It was shining because he'd been in the presence of God. It reflected God's glory. That's how glorious God is. That's how, what Jesus looked like when he was transfigured here in Mark 9. Moses' face was shining. So much so that the Israelites were like, can you do something about that? It's a little unnerving. It's not what normal human appearance. Oh, can, you, can you mask up? Can you put a veil? They said put a veil. He put a veil over his face until the glow went away. And Paul says here in Second Corinthians three seventeen. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Look at this, verse eighteen. But we all, followers of Jesus, those who've received Christ as Savior, we all, with open face, we don't have a veil, open face, beholding as in a glass, we behold the glory of the Lord. We behold it in Jesus Christ. We're changed, metamorphosed. Same word as Jesus. We are changed. We're transformed into the same image, image of Christ, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Paul's saying here that Jesus Christ and what he did, when he came, his message, his ministry, he took the veil that hid God's glory from us, 
our sin, our darkened understanding. We couldn't understand God. But as a result, those who trusted Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit uses the, the gospel, the word of God, to do a powerful work in our lives. It says here, he's, he's taking away our ignorance. He's revealing to us who Jesus is. Jesus revealed the fullness of God's glory to us. And that should affect us. It should transform us into whose image? Jesus' image. Second um, Corinthians 3.18 here. We all, we all with unveiled faces, we see, we contemplate God's glory in Jesus Christ, and we are being metamorphosed. We are being transformed into this image of Jesus Christ. I like one of the modern translations says, with ever-increasing glory. Is that true in your life? Is there ever-increasing conformity to the image of Jesus Christ? That's what's supposed to happen for a Christian. That's the transformation that's supposed to take place. I've got a couple of questions for you. And there might be one watching, one here. You've never trusted Christ as Savior. This is the first time you've actually seen. The Holy Spirit's used God's word to reveal to you who Jesus really was. And that he, he's your Savior and you need him. Confess your sins to him. We'll have a time of invitation here. Don't wait for that. I mean, right now, in your heart, in prayer, just call out to God. Confess your sins to him. Tell him you believe that Jesus Christ saved you from them. He, he paid the penalty for your sins. Ask him to be your savior. If you've got questions on what that means on the back of our bulletin, on our website, contact me or Tommy during the week. We, we want you to know what it means to be born again. But, but Christian, you have been transformed. That was an instantaneous process. The moment you accepted Christ as savior, scripture says you're a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Instantaneous it happened like that. And then there's this progressive process of it too. We call it sanctification. That's the big doctrinal word for it. It just means what verse 18 said. You're becoming more and more like Jesus. You behold his glory. You behold the word of God. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God in your life and he transforms you with ever increasing glory. Can I give you some encouragement about the process part of this? The instantaneous part, that happens. That's the Holy Spirit doing it. This is the Holy Spirit doing it too, but it, it involves your will as well. You have to yield to him. If you, if you are not making progress, in this sanctification, this, this transformation. Um, or if you're, if you're not making the progress you want. Can I just encourage you? I think sometimes we, we forget that sanctification, it is a process. <laughs> this transformation, it is a process. We want it to be like an interstate. We don't get there. You know, we're a fast culture. We're on everything right now. Let's just keep the, stay the course. Stay in God's word. Let the Holy Spirit do this transformation. But you got to be in the word to do that. That's what he uses. The powerful word of God does this powerful work of God in your life. But just please keep on just because it's not happening as fast as you want it to. I think we think it's like an interstate. It's not. It's like roads out by me. It's like logging roads with big ruts. Don't turn around. Don't, don't quit. Keep going. Jen Wilkin is this great teacher. Yeah. And she, she said this. Sanctification rarely looks like an immediate ceasing of sin in our lives. It's great. It can happen. Sometimes it does. But rarely does it look like that. More often, more often it looks like a distance. It's a distance between when you commit sin. Is there a distance? This means you're growing. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> There's a transformation happen. Is there a distance in the, between the times you're committing sin? Or sometimes it looks like, the, like a decrease, a decrease, 
between when you commit sin and when you confess it? Will you be like David? Keep very short accounts with God. Don't go off and just wander away and don't turn back. Don't be like the product. Don't, don't wake up in a pigsty. Don't get there. Turn around before you get there. The Father welcomes you with loving arms. Jesus Christ paid for your sin. This church is a place of grace. Turn here. This is the environment, the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ that paid for your sin. This is the environment where you can turn. Let's keep it that way. Lord, help us keep it that way. A place of grace, space for grace in our interactions with each other. Because he's going to transform you if you do. Keep, keep going. If there's not, if there's not that distance, or if you're just stalled, if there's not an increase between when you commit sin, if there's not a decrease between when you commit it and when you confess it, is, is it because there's some obstacle in your life in, in renewing your mind? Is there something that's getting in the way of this? It's got to be, like, if this is all you get, it's not going to work. I'm thankful you're here, but if this is all you get, it's not, the transformation's going to be more slow. You need this daily in different ways in the car. Your kids need this daily. Your grandkids need this daily. If you want to see their lives transformed, man, doesn't this world need it? Can't the gospel of Jesus Christ do it? It's the only thing. It's the only thing that can do it. So as Tommy comes, we're going to sing, draw me nearer. And like we think of that song, and it is. Like, I want to be close to you, God. Draw me nearer. I want intimate relationship with you. I want to find my satisfaction in that, God. And it is. But also, draw me nearer. Help me to be nearer to Jesus. When people see me, when they see what I do, when they see what I value, when they see what I say, that they see Jesus. That's the ever-increasing glory. So however the Holy Spirit's been uh, using the Word of God, I pray he's been doing a powerful work of transformation here this morning. However he's been doing that, I just ask that you'd obey.